Welcome to Talking Mopars, episode number 67. On this episode, we have Project Car of the Week, high-performance parts, listener stories, and over a year ago on episode 10, I talked about buying a modern Challenger for my 40th birthday. But as I sit here approaching 36, my mind has changed, and I'm currently shopping for something different. Being a dad has made me realize that I need something that is practical, convenient, and fun. So now, I'm looking for a Scat Pack Charger. We're going to talk about that, but because I'm such a fan of all aspects of the car business, I thought it would be fun to talk about the fun test drive I took in a Scat Pack Charger over the weekend, why I didn't buy it, and how I inspect a used car after learning many lessons from all the cars I've purchased in the past, as well as working in auto body shops and service shops. This is actually going to be a two-part podcast as well, with this being part number one. On the next episode, which will be part two, I'm going to talk about my tips and tricks when you get back to the dealership and step inside to talk numbers so you don't get taken for a ride. There's just a lot of things that people overlook when buying cars, or maybe they're just not aware of, so I thought it would be fun to talk about that and hopefully save you a couple bucks on your next purchase. So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. This week's Project Car of the Week was posted on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page on Monday, January 18th at 12 p.m. Let's read the ad. 1971 Plymouth Satellite Sebring Plus, two-door hardtop project car, $7,995. 1971 Plymouth Satellite Sebring Plus, two-door hardtop project car. It does not run or drive at this time. It has an 8 and 3 quarter rear end and a V8 auto that turns over but will need a carburetor rebuild and a tune-up before it will run. The engine has low miles since a rebuild. It has a Roadrunner Power Bulge hood. This is offered for sale as a restoration project and not as a driver. It needs complete restoration. Please see pictures. It will not be sold with the wheels and tires shown in the pictures. It will be sold with factory steel wheels. It has a small rust hole down low behind the rear tire, and it has minor rust issues in other areas. The body has a number of small dents and imperfections. The dash has rust. The floorboards and trunk are good. The windows are stuck up. The interior is all there but needs to be restored and cleaned. The passenger door is stuck shut and will not open. It has been sitting for an extended period of time. The brakes do not work. The car may have been yellow as there is a lot of yellow color showing through. It needs paint. It will have all four tires. It rolls and can be winched onto a car hauler. The interior and exterior of this car needs a full restoration job. It has normal imperfections common of a 50-year-old car. When restored, it is sure to attract attention. Any cleaning or restoration will be left up to the buyer. The pictures show the condition of this vehicle. If you have a specific concern, please ask. I will consider a trade for an excavator or skid steer. Title status is clean. All right, folks. So I've started looking at the level of reach and engagement for these project cars that I post on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page. And this satellite was actually really, really popular, reaching over 100,000 people and something like over 18,000 people engaging with the post in some sort of way. So this is just one of those beaters that you know, and I say beaters with love, that I really see making a great ratty street machine. It's got a ton of potential, but I do think the price needs to drop significantly for it to be taken seriously. It sits really nice on staggered turbine wheels with a really nice rake, but as stated in the ad, the wheels don't come with, which is super unfortunate because they really help make the look of the car. So if it were mine, I'd have to immediately get some wheels 
to bring the car back to how it looks in the pictures. I do like the later Roadrunner hood that's on it. It's got hood pins. It looks mean. And I believe the hood on this car is only available on 73 and 74 Roadrunners. It's got the power bulge in the center and the two front facing scoops. I think it fits the overall look of this car really, really good. The interior cracked me up because this thing has shag carpet on the floor and those absolutely garbage seat covers. <laughs> the original color looks to be white and the years have definitely taken their toll on this car's interior, but I just can't stop looking at this shag carpet. And actually, you know, I see what they're trying to accomplish here. They cut out square pieces of shag carpet to use as floor mats. I think I've seen this before. That's really funny. And to be honest, it's a little messy, but you got to do what you got to do, I guess. One thing that was pointed out on the comment thread for this car is that this car is said to be a Sebring Plus, but the Sebring Plus is supposed to have a rally gauge cluster. This one does not have that. So the Sebring Plus replaced the Sport Satellite in Plymouth lineup in 71, but it only lasted another year and then died um, in 73, I believe, or by the time 73 came around. And it's funny, if you look into the Sebring Plus, you could option it out to basically be a Roadrunner. It's got standard bucket seats, the rally gauges, optional hood pins, optional big block, you know, and a bunch of other stuff. Of course, the Roadrunner was the budget performance car and equipped similarly, it would probably be cheaper than the Sebring Plus. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But anyways, the car needs a lot of work as most ratty Mopars do, but you could get it running, you know, throw some wheels and tires on it and beat the hell out of it just to have fun with it. That's what these ratty Mopars are all about. You know, it's not about how deep your pockets are. It's about how deep your passion for these cars is, no matter what condition they're in. And as you guys know, I love ratty pieces of junk. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I say pieces of junk with love. These cars are cool and it's just nice to see them back out on the road and not rotting in somebody's backyard or something. You know what I mean? But that was Project Car of the Week, the 1971 Plymouth Satellite Sebring posted on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page on Monday, January 18th at high noon. No Mopar left behind. This week's high performance part belongs to the 1969 and a half H12 Dodge Super B featured in the music video for the song First Date by Blink 182. About a minute into this video, we see a red 1969 Super B, and not much can really be seen aside from the bright red paint, the steel wheels, and what looks to be vented police poverty caps and the liftoff hood sitting on the roof of the car. It's pretty neat to see an A12 on TV other than, you know, a Barrett Jackson or a Meekum auction. So I thought this one deserves some recognition. Not much to say other than it's probably one of the, actually it probably is the only A12 Super B ever featured in a music video. I would love to know if there's another one and I'll make that a high performance part too. But that was this week's high performance part, the 1969 and a half A12 Dodge Super B featured in the music video for the song First Date by Blink-182. It's time once again for listener stories. This week's listener story was again more of a message and it was sent in to us again from our buddy Tad with the Super B in California. Here is Tad's message. Hey, Chris, it's Tad. Hey, I was just listening to uh, this most recent podcast um, about the van and just actually getting through the mid part of it, but I wanted to stop and and uh, I was going to write an email, but I just thought I'd give you a call. Um, first of all, I almost had to reach out to you again, see if you're okay. I was a little worried I hadn't uh, seen the podcast in a while. But um, anyway, really appreciating you continuing doing this, and I, and I always enjoy listening to them 
Um, the other thing I wanted to say as I listened to my story on your podcast, and it wasn't meant this way, and I don't think you took it this way, but when I listened to it, I, I was like, man, I'm really hounding this guy. I'm really beating him up. And it's like, that wasn't the point of it. I was just super excited for you and, and uh, just, you know, push me a little bit, see if you'd get it. Um, but anyway, uh, sorry to hear that it's sold, but I, uh, I get it with the HOA thing also. I, I live in, you know, I think every neighborhood in California is an HOA, but uh, I live in one now, and prior to that, I lived on two and a half acres. The only problem there is I didn't have a shop, and it's impossible to build in California, so I moved to a house with a double wide, or I'm sorry, two-car double deep garage, so it's like a quad garage, which I have totally filled to the max right now with my paint booth and everything. But uh, I get it. had the 65 dart at my house for a while in the driveway. I mean, covered up with a car cover, and I got a letter from the HOA that said I had to move my nuisance vehicle. So I called him, and I'm like, why is it a nuisance vehicle? And she said, well, if you wash it and wash the windows and clean it up a little bit, make it look a little better, I think it'd be okay. And I said, uh covered up with a car cover so how, how do you even know that the, wind, the windows are dirty or the paint's dirty <laughs> so I get it HOAs suck um, the other thing oh your motivation for your dart did I get that way with the Super B I mean it's been six years and finally when all the kids are down or they're gone or everyone's there or gone I go to work on I walk in the garage and look at it and I start thinking about the entire project and it's so easy to get demotivated or I don't know if that's even a word, but uh, unmotivated. So I step back. I just realize, I say to myself, if I don't start, I can't finish. So I, I kind of do the whole, how do you eat an elephant thing? And I just pick one thing and I go in and start working on it. And before I know it, I've forgotten how frustrating or, or, you know, unmotivated I am, and I'm in the project, and I'm working on it. It turns out to be a great day. So, uh, if you walk out there and you're not motivated or just overwhelmed, just just start, just do something and start, and kind of fight through that little bit of of uh, frustration or whatever. And I guarantee, you, once you get going and into something, it'll it'll work out. So, uh, yeah, man. Uh, sorry if I'm winded here. I'm out walking the dog, but. Uh, I think you should keep it, man. Hang on to it. It's easy to get unmotivated or frustrated or just see things sitting. But I'll tell you, now that I have the Super B painted and I have all the parts going back on, that part's exciting. And I'm also realizing how many little pieces and parts and things I still have to get and clean and put in. It's just another level of I don't know if it's frustration, but just realizing how long it's going to take. But anyway, man, keep going. Love the podcast. Looking forward to the new year and, and supporting your uh, your other endeavors, uh, the YouTube videos. So uh, have a good January, and we'll uh, we'll be listening to your podcast. Thanks, man. Hey, Tad. Thanks for the words of encouragement, man. And please understand that it is truly appreciated. You know. I sit here listening to you talk and all I can think of is, man, he's right. You know, how am I supposed to finish something if I can't even start it? You know, and I've started both of my projects, my truck and my dart, but it's just getting to the, 
you know, getting the ball rolling, especially when I have so much other stuff going on. But, you know, that's not me complaining. That's just me being real. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to pick one thing on my truck to do and one thing on my dart to do. And I'm going to give myself a little deadline and I'm just going to do it. So thanks, man. I really appreciate those words. And, you know, I recently got an email from Ross in Australia, Dodgy Ross, and he kind of beat me up a little bit. So, I mean, it was, he beat me up so much so that I wasn't too sure that I even wanted to share with everyone here on the podcast, just because I'm like, I don't know if anyone wants to hear that. But his email basically pointed out some of my own faults as far as my own projects go. And he was questioning how long people would continue to listen to the show. If I'm always talking about what I wish I was doing and, you know, what I wish I had done and things like that. And he questioned my content. And if I'm being honest here, you know, it stung a little, you know, when somebody attacks your work like that, you know, and I don't think he meant it as an attack, you know, he, he meant it as some honest criticism and I appreciate that. So Ross, don't think that I'm throwing shade at you right now, but the point I'd like to make is on one hand, he's absolutely right with what he said. And on the other hand, I have to defend myself. You know, I'm overwhelmed and it's clear with how it has affected my scheduling lately. So first and foremost, Tad to you and everyone else who is a loyal listener to this show, Ross, I thank you guys all for your patience and consideration while I get back on track here and, you know, start cranking away on my projects and start getting back on track with this podcast. It's just not easy to juggle, you know, being a content creator and having projects, you know, and being a dad, you know, and these aren't excuses. This is just my reality, but I know that the way to mitigate some of my frustrations is to combine the two. So, I'm now working out a plan for how I'm going to be able to incorporate my projects into video content and bonus podcasts. So hopefully in doing that, I'll be able to hold myself accountable for what I'm able to get done every week from here moving forward. But I do want to say to people that may be tired of hearing me talk about my plans and the things that I'm working out, not only, you know, in my head, but publicly here on the show, I've always wanted to keep this podcast real and stay true to myself, even if I'm uncomfortable admitting my own faults and weaknesses like I am here now. You know, I guess a part of me has just always hoped that you guys would stay along for the ride and ride shotgun with me through these trials and tribulations that I go through in my personal life, you know, as it relates to Mopars and this podcast. So to those of you who are not interested in that, you know, I completely get it. I'm a podcast fan myself, and sometimes I take a break from podcasts only to come back later and catch up and, you know, realize, oh yeah, I missed this guy. But I hope that some of you stay for the ride, but I want you to know that I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing because this is all about evolving and growing this show into something fun for all like-minded Mopar enthusiasts. So I hope that's you. I hope you guys keep listening. And I've said before that if you listen to this show, I consider you a friend. And it would suck to hear that I lost anybody as a listener because of my own personal shortcomings. But that's the price I'm willing to pay if it means staying true to myself, staying honest, and giving you guys a little window into my personal life pertaining to Mopars, even if it doesn't make me look like a Mopar hero. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm sure you guys are sitting there on the other end and going, God, he's an idiot, you know, and that's cool. <laughs> you know, I don't mind that. I get it. But I'm hoping that I can still relate to some of you or in some cases even motivate you to get going on your own projects, even while I struggle with mine. You know, I've had people send me messages like, hey, Chris, thanks for, you know, lighting that fire under me to get going on my stuff. And I'm just like, gosh, where's the fire when I need it? <laughs> you know what I mean? But my reality now is that I am committing to getting these projects going and having you guys along for the ride. 
that's what I'm going to do. So that's what we're doing. Tad, thanks for the message and encouragement. And Ross, you know, thank you as well. It means a lot that you guys take the time out of your day to let me know what's going on in your mind. You know, let's be real here. Every episode, I ask you guys to send in your stories, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, and then everything else on your Mopar addicted mind. So for me to be offended by what anyone says to me, if even if it's, you know, harsh criticism or just honest criticism or feel bad about what you guys send me would be a slap in your faces. So if you guys reach out to me in any type of way, I appreciate you. And I want to know how you guys are feeling about this show. So I appreciate when people reach out to me and tell me, oh, I love this show. Uh, What do you love about it? You know, hey, man, last week's episode kind of sucked. You know, this is why, you know, that stuff helps me get better content to you guys. So, you know, sometimes I need a wake up call and sometimes I need a, a fire lit under me to wake me up too and get moving on all these tasks that I have at hand. But I'm human and sometimes I just need a buddy to reach out, give me some good advice or constructive criticism. You know what I mean? So Tad, no sweat, buddy. I know you meant well um, as far as the van goes. And I appreciate you sending in your initial opinions on the van, but unfortunately it just wasn't in the cards and that's okay. But I'll tell you what though, the van that my buddy Stacy has is not going anywhere until I go get it. So my mind is at ease about that. That van is definitely happening. It's not going anywhere. It's coming to me. And I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but I'm planning to go get it um, the week of my birthday. I took the week of my birthday off of work so I could spend a day and go meet Stacy in person and see his projects and get the van, pick up the van. So that'll be a fun little road trip that I will document So look forward to that. But thanks again for dropping me a message, Tad. That was really sound advice. And I'm glad to hear that you're doing good on your Super B. I'm going to apply everything that you said to my current situation. And Dodgy Ross from Down Under, thanks for giving me another perspective on the show, man. I really appreciate it. I understand that listeners to this show are not my therapists. (laughs) You know what I mean? But like I said, I enjoy sharing what's going on with me and my Mopars, whether good or bad. And I respect both of you guys for being real with me and for listening. That was listener stories. If you want to hear your story or in this case message on the show, you can do that by emailing me or leaving me a voicemail that I will play on the show. My email is chris at talkingmopars.com and the number to call for voicemails is 209-28-MOPAR. I look forward to sharing your Mopar stories and messages. All right, folks, now that my therapy session is over, and thank you for listening, for those of you that have been tuning in since the early episodes, you might recall on episode 10, where I was talking about buying myself a new wide body scat pack challenger for my 40th birthday. Well, no big surprise here, folks, my mind has changed. I've realized that for my current family situation, a challenger is probably not the best choice right now. And When I think about a newer Challenger, if I'm going to get one, I'd like to just go big with a Hellcat of some sorts, you know, instead of just the Scat Pack. Even better if I could find myself in a position where I could buy a Challenger Superstock or, gosh, a Demon would be amazing, but I'm not counting. I'm not counting on that. But the decision has been made to instead start shopping for a deal on a used Scat Pack Charger. Initially with the new Chargers, Like many others, I felt personally attacked by Dodge. You know, like, how could you put the Charger name on a sedan? But after driving one, I completely understand. The car is perfect. In fact, I can now comfortably say that I'm glad the Charger is a four-door because had it been a two-door, we may have not 
got the chance to see the Challenger come back and have the success that it has. The Challenger is a huge success, and so is the Charger, you know, even if it is a four-door sedan. Um, I'm not sure if it would have the same success if it was a two-door. You know, that might be controversial for me to say, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think the Charger four-door is a hit, you know, and I know there's a lot of guys out there that hate it. But, you know, I, like I said, at first I was like, man, what the hell are they doing? Four-door Charger. But now that I've driven one and experienced one, I get it. It makes perfect marketing sense, you know, and I can say now that what Dodge did was absolutely great marketing. They've created an American muscle sedan. Now, you know, of course, like I said, a two-door charger would have been cool, but these charger sedans are absolutely amazing, and I will never look at them the same again. But when I start shopping for a car to purchase from a new and used car dealership, I always spend time doing market research. I want to know what cars are available in the area and the surrounding areas and what they're currently priced at. The research part of my process is just as important as the buying process because I want to go into the experience armed with all the information I'm going to need to avoid being bent over when it comes to signing on that dotted line. You know what I mean? But these cars are still reasonably priced. They're super fun to drive. And by going with a used one, I can avoid that depreciation hit that you take when you drive a brand new car off the lot. So that was my thinking when I decided to shop for a used one. And that said, these cars seem to hold their resale value very well. It's actually hard to find a low mileage example in my area in the low $30,000 range, which is what I thought I was going to be expecting when I started shopping, but it seems like I'm going to be spending somewhere in the mid to high thirties for one, maybe even dip into the forties a little bit, but you know, I'm okay with that. I, if I'm going to be spending, you know, high thirties or low forties, you know, give me a base model new one. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the only issue I've had was that I've only ever driven new challengers, never a charger. So first things first, I had to go find one to take for a spin. So what I did was some research and I found that there was a serious lack of selection in my local area, which is, you know, north of Seattle. And that surprised me, but I'm in no hurry to purchase. So I just picked a few that fit my needs and decided to start with the one closest to me. And it just happens to be the one in the list that intrigued me the most. So I thought the car presented well and was in the right price range where I needed it to be. And I set out to check it out. The one I found was a 2017 Charger Scat Pack with 27,000 miles on it listed at, you know, just under 37,000. I think it was like 36 and a half. It was painted white knuckle and it had the Dynamics package, which meant it had the big six piston Brembo brakes in the front and the 20 by nine and a half inch satin black Hellcat wheels. It had tinted windows and it just looked great. I loved the look of the car. So I went to the dealer to check it out. Now let's get to the fun part driving the car. I get to the dealer, I'm looking at the car, a salesman comes out and throws the usual couple questions. You know, what brings you in today? Are you planning on trading anything in? Are you gonna be financing or paying cash? All these questions, I don't like to answer. Um, I'm not a jerk about it, I just say, you know, I don't know yet. I'm still deciding, I'm just looking at the car. <laughs> you know, 30 seconds, I don't need to be answering questions. So I think he kind of got that vibe. So he said, let me go grab the key. So I was like, all right, good. I can get a look at this car without a salesman breathing down my neck because, you know, to all the salesmen out there, I get it. You got a job to do, but, you know, come up with something creative. <laughs> they always come to you with the same thing, the same set of questions. And I'm like, can I just look at the car? If I want it, I'll let you know. <laughs> you know, you don't have to sell me on the car, but... 
All I have to say when it comes down to actually driving these things is, wow, now I know why so many people love them. I was not expecting the car to move as well as it did, you know, and the challengers I've driven, you know, they were pretty impressive for being big cars, but with the charger, I don't know. I just, it just seemed to me like it would feel bigger. I just wasn't expecting that car to move like it did. You know, that's just me being honest. And I'm not saying that I stretched the car's legs a little during the unaccompanied test drive, but I'm also not saying that I didn't. You know, after all, who takes a car in a test drive and doesn't at least drive it the way they would if it was theirs? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'll say this. From 70 miles an hour to the moon, the car pulls like a monster. <laughs> you know, and, you know, that's subjective. You know, if you're talking about it, a Hellcat or something. It doesn't pull like a Hellcat. But for a bone stock family sedan, if that's what we want to call it, a sports sedan, a performance, a performance four-door vehicle, this thing was a blast, you know. And just the when you're at 70 miles an hour and you stab the throttle, this thing throws you in your seat. At least that's what it did to me. That's what it felt like. Maybe it's just because I haven't driven something fast in a while, but you know. This normally aspirated 485 horsepower, 6.4 liter Hemi with 475 pound-feet of torque really put a smile on my face. That thing surprised me with how manageable it was at higher speeds. The car just did not feel like a land yacht. You know, so many people say they're, you know, the big girls, they're heavy, whatever. You know, for me, I thought it was very powerful and a complete blast to drive. You know, like I said, one quick stab of that throttle and you're slammed into the seat. It was really fun. I wasn't expecting it to be that fun, <laughs> you know, but needless to say, I was impressed and I was immediately sold. As soon as I, the first five minutes of driving this car, I was like, oh, I'm getting one of these. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, maybe not that particular one, but I definitely, my mind was made up at that point. I'm getting a scat pack charger at least, you know, they're just so fun to drive, but I'm sitting there driving this thing and I'm just smiling and I'm thinking to myself, you mean to tell me that I can have a family car and a performance car at the same time? <laughs> you know, boy, that's having my cake and eating it too. And it makes my stomach hurt so good. <laughs> but I'm taking this car for a spin and I decide to drive it home, you know, to see how it looks in my driveway and to also get a good look at the car without a salesman breathing down my neck, trying to get me inside to talk numbers because that's what they, that's what they do. You know, they'll ask you those first introductory questions and then they'll let you take it for a spin. And then as soon as you get back, they're going to get you inside the dealership because then they have you, you know, they, they got control of the situation. You know, I like to say, yeah, yeah, in a minute. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I like to keep looking at the car just to make sure, you know, before I, before I go in there and see any numbers, I want to make sure that it's something that I really want to commit to because I don't want to waste somebody's time and I don't want to waste my own time. So before I even step foot in that dealership, which I, you know, part of me loves the car buying process and part of me hates it. The part of me that hates it is like, just go away and let me look at the car. If I want to buy it, I will walk in there and find you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the other part of me is like, okay, I like the car. Let's go, let's go see where the numbers are at so that, you know, I know if I can just walk out now, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if I, or if I should stay and maybe we can work a deal, but when I get this thing to my house, the first thing I do is I pop the hood, open the trunk and the doors, and I just start looking at the thing. Like I said, it was a 2017 with only 27,000 miles on it. So, you know, I'm, I'm expecting it to be clean. I'm expecting it to be good, but I just wanted to do my due diligence because, you know, 
you want to get as good of a look at the car as you can. And unfortunately, you know, this was, this was nighttime. So that's a horrible time to buy a car. So I brought it home because I have a little bit better lighting. And to be honest, if, if I'm being 100% honest, I wasn't planning on buying that car that night. Even if the deal looked good, I, I, from now on, I'm trying to sleep on these things. I'd like to sleep on the deals before I just sign away. And if the car gets sold, the car gets sold. You know, there's a million scat pack chargers out there, but I, I just want to do my due diligence. So this is how I do a basic inspection on a car, whether it be used or even new ones. You never know. Some new cars, if you've got a lineup of 10 cars and you just grab one and you're like, okay, I'll take that one. And you start looking at it, you know, take a good look at it. You never know. You know, maybe it was getting pulled off the trailer and, you know, something happened underneath it. You know, you just take a look at the car. So that's what I was doing. And when I do a basic inspection on a car that I'm considering buying, I start at the back and work my way forward, checking everything, you know, panel fitment. I'm looking for dings, dents, previous paint work, even swirl marks in the paint. You know, how was this car washed? Was the guy or gal who owned it, were they taking it through those automatic car washes and just beating the hell out of it? Were they going through those, you know, self-serve car washes where you take the the brush that everybody else has used, <laughs> you know, on their dirty cars, and then you scrub your car, and then you get scratches all over it and swirl marks. That's the kind of stuff I'm looking for, just to see. You know, 27,000 miles on this thing, it was pretty clean. You know, the paint, it could use a little paint correction, nothing too big, but, you know, a good buff would be good for the car and it was white which kind of surprised me as far as seeing all the swirl marks in it because i was like you know i'm used to seeing bad swirl marks in black but white i used to work at a detail shop where we did nothing but white vehicles because we were reconditioning construction vehicles you know mostly vans and trucks and they were all white so I, i'm used to seeing a really clean white because i actually took pride in making those things look as good as they could, you know, polishing turds. <laughs> That's what I was doing there. But, you know, so I'm checking, I'm checking this car out, checking the overall condition. Um, like I said, I started at the back, so I had the trunk up. So what I do there is I just kind of take a, take a general look at the trunk. I lift up the trunk insert. I inspect for leaks and anything that looks like the vehicle had possibly been rear-ended and had a repair at some point. I'm looking for anything out of place. Um, I love to see it when it looks untouched. I'm like, okay, they never, they never had to pull any of this stuff out. Maybe they didn't even lift this thing up. So I like seeing that. So, you know, with 27,000 miles, you know, I wasn't surprised to see that it was really clean and basically untouched. That to me is a good sign. And the panel fitment in the rear was good. The rear bumper showed no signs of replacement or repair. And there was no, there was no body decomp smell in the trunk. So assuming the car wasn't involved in any nefarious activities, I shut the trunk and I moved on after a quick check of the underside of the bumper. But when I look under the bumper of these cars, that's just my quick way of seeing if it's ever been hooked to a reckless tow truck or something like that. You know, you never know what you're going to find underneath the car. And sometimes it can tell you a lot about it. But I found nothing concerning. So I decided to keep moving forward. And I started to check the door jams for signs of masking for paintwork or anything else out of the ordinary. The process really doesn't take long at all going door to door unless you're super nitpicky and I can be depending on the vehicle but this one you know it, it it presented really well and it was really clean so I was just basically planning on doing a quick inspection to see if maybe there had been you know kids in the back or a lot of wear from frequent passengers um, on the seats and stuff like that the car was clean 
as a low mileage newer car should be. The front part of the interior was in good shape too, with basically no significant wear to the driver's seat, which is nice because, you know, some people are just reckless when they get in and out of cars and they wear that side bolster uh, getting in and out of the car all the time. They wear it down and that part of the seat always looks like crap after a few months. So it was nice to see that this one was in pretty decent shape. So as I'm going door to door and I shut each door, I check for a quick panel fitment, make sure everything looks good. And then I start working my way forward, taking a look at gaps between the doors and fenders. Oh, and you also want to take a look at the rockers just to make sure, you know, maybe somebody had to jack it up at some point. They did a really reckless job. So <laughs> things like that is what you, just basic stuff, you know, just look at the car, but everything looked good. You know, the gaps between the doors and the fenders looked good. And I had already popped the hood. So with the hood open, I started taking a look in the engine bay. And one thing I like to check is the bolts that attach the hood and the fenders. The hood bolts looked clean and untouched, but lo and behold, the bolts to the driver's side fender had paint worn off as if they had been previously removed. This was concerning to me because, you know, first thing you think is, okay, this fender has been taken off at some point. So once I saw that, I immediately checked them all and all the driver's side bolts showed signs of removal. I jumped over to the passenger side, and sure enough, same thing on that side as well. The paint was worn off of the bolts. So I started looking at the fitment of the front bumper to the fenders, and while not pure perfection, the fitment was nice. So I was like, okay, I got underneath the car. I looked under the front of the car, and re one thing I realized is how low these cars are. These scat packs are pretty low to the ground, and there was quite a bit of scrapage under there. Not sure if the original owner just didn't care or what, but seeing how little ground clearance there was, I wasn't surprised to see all the scrapes. But I really didn't see anything concerning as far as a possible wreck, you know, and that's good. But it still made me nervous as to why the front end had been taken off. But at this point, I decided to take the car back to the dealer and let them know what I had found and kind of gauge their reaction. And looking back now, stupid me, I could have just referred to the website, which actually has a free Carfax to look at on the listing of the car. You know, I didn't realize that until later that day. And, you know, technology is just, <laughs> you know, I remember buying cars with my dad and you know, they didn't have that kind of stuff. Carfax didn't exist. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, you're, you're looking at the car from the front to the back, from the top to the bottom and making sure you're not going to get screwed that way. Now with Carfax, you know, it's really easy to see if a car has been involved in anything, but let's just say we pulled up the Carfax and it was clean. Well, judging by the bolts on the fenders, I know they've been taken off. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's, that's a red flag right there, but I wanted to see what the Carfax looked like when I got back to the dealership. And when I got back, we pulled up the Carfax and sure enough, there was a red flag. There was actually two red flags. As it turns out, the Carfax indicated that the front end received a moderate amount of damage that was repaired at some point. But to my surprise, there had also been some minor damage to the rear at some point too. You know, wow. I didn't even see any indications of that and I checked it pretty good. So that made me question how well I actually inspected the rear bumper in the trunk area, but it was listed as only minor damage and that could be anything, you know, just maybe he bumped into something, you know, nothing major. Um, Carfax will let you know if the car has been towed or if the airbags deployed. So none of those incidents 
had caused the airbags to deploy or the vehicle being towed, which is a good sign. But with a vehicle that's, you know, only a few years old, you know, handful of years old and low mileage, less than 30,000 miles to have two things on the Carfax was kind of disappointing to me because I liked the car. But the other thing that I saw on the car when I was at my house was that I forgot to mention earlier was that there was light surface rust around the brakes and on the rear wheel hubs. Now, I understand that cars will develop rust from sitting, but this was a little bit different. Nothing that couldn't be fixed with a little prep and paint, but still not something I wanted to see when I'm spending over $30,000. You know what I mean? Hey, get rid of the rust. <laughs> but once I saw the car facts, I knew that this car wasn't the one, and I had already basically made up my mind on the way back to the dealership anyway, but I was still curious to see what their initial numbers would look like since I had a vehicle that I actually do want to trade in, but I didn't tell them that at first. And I told him when I got back, cause I was like, look, I'm not buying this car. I need to see what they would give me for my truck anyway. So I can kind of judge where I'm at from an actual Dodge dealership. So I told him, yeah, I'm actually interested in possibly trading in my car, depending on how much you're going to give me for it. So I told him what my payoff was and they, you know, salesmen went over to the sales manager like they do. And they, they chat for a little bit pass paperwork back and forth, but in dealing with buying cars from dealerships, a lot of the time, I've never not been met with an initial offer that was laughable. And this time was no different. The amount they were actually going to give me for my trade was a complete joke. And even with my trade aside, they had tacked on nearly $6,000 of add-ons, bringing the original sales price from $36.5 to over $42,000. In the car business, this is generally referred to as peeling off the ceiling. It's where they hit you with a big enough number that it sticker shocks you, but it gives them enough room for negotiation. So here I am sitting with the initial offer in front of me and I'm looking at the numbers and they don't look that bad, even after they tacked on $6,000 that I didn't ask them to. And I guess that's just their dealership policy because the way it usually works is they'll give you the sale price on the car. You'll sometimes see them do a four square, which is basically four boxes and one box has your trade-in value. The other box has the sales price of the vehicle. The box below that has your down payment. And the last box will be your monthly payment box where they will break down depending on the term of your loan and your APR, what your monthly payment will be. So usually they'll hit you with the four square. This time, they just hit me with a piece of paper that had a bunch of numbers on it. On the left side, it had all the financing terms, you know, uh, with a with a column for how much I'd put down. The next column would be, okay, if this is how much you put down, that it was basically a spreadsheet for this many months, this percentage rate, you know, this much down. So you could see, you know, in your head, you can start looking at all the numbers and, you know, they do a pretty good job about hitting you with that first number zero down. You've got this giant payment, but as you go down, you get, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, the payment comes down a little bit. And then you knowing some math, you're going to go, okay, I'm going to save a little bit on interest. If I do, you know, a shorter term, I might even get a better percentage rate, but on this piece of paper, you've got the finance side, and then you've got the details of the vehicle on the other side. So you got your selling price and you know, your, your trade allowance, your, you know, add-ons, like uh, they added a service contract, a maintenance contract and automatically added gap insurance. That's where the $6,000 came from. And then they had the estimated trade value that they're going to give me. Um, 
the trade amount that they were going to give me, which was exactly the same as the estimate. I don't know why they reiterated that twice, but they did. And then all the other fees associated with a purchase of a car, um, like your documentation fee, admin fees, tax and license, stuff like that. So, and then uh, your cash down if you have any, and then it'll show you your amount financed or your, what they call the out the door price. And that's what I like to get at first. I like to go, look, 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 I don't care what your sales price is. What's your out the door price. That way I know where I'm at from the get go. Okay. So here I am sitting with this initial offer in front of me and I'm looking at these numbers and what people don't know is that there are so many negotiable things on that piece of paper. You have no idea. Pretty much everything's pretty much negotiable with the exception of your sales tax. You know, if you pay sales tax on vehicles in Washington, we pay sales tax. So that's the only thing that's really not negotiable, but you can get that number to come down by negotiating everything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this is where a lot of people get lost. They get lost in the numbers. And in the instance, if you have a four square in front of your face, you know, they're going to focus you in on your monthly payment and your down payment because they're going to want to, they're going to want to get some cash and they're going to want to make you feel at ease, you know, and say, Hey, for 84 months at, you know, 7.99%, you know, your monthly payment's going to be $750 a month. <laughs> you're going to get sticker shocked and go, whoa, $750 a month. Are you out of your damn mind? But then they're going to show you, you know, oh, but if you put down $7,000, that payment will go down. So my initial offer was on a printout that had all these numbers, the finance terms and all the details for the pricing of the vehicle and what the total amount finance would be. So with the four square, they're going to try to keep your attention on the two squares at the bottom, which are usually down payment and your monthly payments. Because, you know, when you're talking to them initially, they're going to try to get some questions out of you from the get-go. You know, are you going to be trading in? Are you going to be financing or paying cash? What kind of monthly payment were you looking for? Um, how much down do you have? They're going to ask these questions to try to gauge you and see where you're at. They're going to try you on. That's what they call it. They're going to try you on. And the key is not to focus on those numbers because you should have already been prepared knowing what you could spend or what you're pre-approved for before you even go and look at a car. I'm going to go ahead and stop this story slash lesson on car buying right here. And on the next episode, we're going to dive into the type of tactics that dealers use when valuing trades, reviewing Carfax reports with you, the negotiation process in general, and how you can negotiate a fair deal simply by understanding the game and being prepared before you even step foot into that showroom. And we're also going to talk about the common practice of simply walking away and not feeling the pressure not feeling that sales pressure, but not before we talk about how they start to peel you off the ceiling like they tried to do with me. That's where I left my story off. But look, the process of buying a car doesn't have to be a headache, but I promise you that chances are in some of the deals or all of the deals that you've made in the past, somewhere within all that paperwork or within those four squares, you are leaving money on the table and we can't be having that folks. We want to squeeze as much money out of them as they try to squeeze out of us. And the only reason I know some of this stuff is because I've been screwed in the past and I have people in the car business that I know and I learn things along the way. I hear these 
I hear these terms and I hear these tactics and you know, you go to any car dealership and you, you just go into the showroom and you look at the cars and you can hear, you can probably hear a bunch of car deals going on. It is the same thing at each one of those tables. It's kind of funny. Every time I've gone to a dealership and looked at a car, it's always the same set of questions and the same process. And that's why I feel confident in telling you guys this kind of stuff so that you can use it to your advantage. You know, it might not be exactly the same, but you know, when it comes down to the numbers and manipulating the numbers, it's all pretty much the same as far as negotiation. We're going to get into that on the next episode so you don't get bent over when buying a car. There you have it, my friends. Another episode of Talking Mopars is in the books. For everything you need to know about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. And don't forget that you can send me your Mopar stories, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, and everything else on your Mopar-addicted mind to Chris at TalkingMopars.com. Or leave me a voice message on my voicemail box at 209-28-MOPAR to hear yourself on the show. I'd like to give a couple special shout-outs as we close out the show here. The first one being to my buddy Johnny Mopar, who has his own YouTube channel, which you can find by heading over to YouTube and searching for Johnny Mopar. That's J-O-N-N-Y-M-O-P-A-R. You might recognize him as a frequent guest on the show, as well as part-time co-host on our recent and some of our future live streams. So go subscribe to Johnny Mopar's YouTube channel and check out his work. Also, special shout out to my buddy Matt Monroe from the Mad Fro Monroe on Big Blocks Garage podcast. Go give that podcast a listen and be sure to check out Big Blocks Garage on YouTube and social media and be watching out for Matt on an upcoming live stream that we're going to have. Finally, a very special thanks to my friends over at HemiPages.com, Chuck and Matt McMurray, and my friend Blake over at DIYHemi.com. Both of those websites are packed full of great Mopar-related content. Be sure to bookmark them, add them to your home screens, and definitely check out their work. One last thing before we wrap it up here. There are a couple of ways that you can help support what I do here on Talking Mopars and the Mopar Hunter 2. The first way is by jumping over to the website TalkingMopars.com and checking out the Talking Mopars merchandise shop. There you're going to find all the current Talking Mopars merchandise, so go give the merch shop a little look-see and possibly grab yourself or even someone you know something cool. The second way to help support the show and my work is by going to the Mopar Hunter Facebook page and becoming a supporter for only $4.99 a month, which breaks down to like $1.25 a week or around $0.17 cents per day, you will get exclusive access to supporter-only content that is coming soon, such as bonus podcast episodes, bonus video content, bonus live streams, exclusive access to the supporters-only group, the Mopar Hunters Association, monthly giveaways, and posts of all my finds of Mopars for sale, Mopar collectibles, and Mopar parts that you will only see if you are a supporter. They are not posted publicly on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page, so consider becoming a supporter today and help me out. Being a supporter of mine is a big help in keeping this Mopar machine running and will help me to provide even better content moving forward. So thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. That's it, my friends. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. 
Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.